Blog Talk Radio. Introducing in the red corner, American Tennis! And introducing in the blue corner, your host for American Tennis, Mr. Chuck Greasy! Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. And hello and welcome back to American Tennis. We have been out a couple weeks, and it's just that time of year. It's the time of year when uh, we have so many things going on with the matches, recruiting, all of the things, I guess. Uh, I hate to say got, um, pro- the radio program got put on the back burner, but it did. But I, we're surely uh, staying with the program. And again, I wanted to bring up, golly, uh, if you can believe it, June 2nd of this year, it'll be 10 years that we've had American Tennis on uh, the radio. And you can get all those programs if you go to chuckcreasy.net and just uh, scroll down American Tennis. And uh, uh, gee whiz, we've had a couple 300, I guess, uh, programs. So uh, we're glad to be back, and I'm hoping that a couple coaches will call in today. I've asked them to call in. I surely want to uh, go into great detail about this uh, topic, and I want to give you uh, parents, coaches, teachers, uh, those interested, a heads up, tennis lovers of tennis, this great sport of tennis, best sport in the world, best sport there ever was. I want to give you some heads up on um, what what's going on and what we need to do. I, the program's called uh, Best Short Scoring When They Force Us To, and that's pretty much... Um, the title tournaments are beginning to use the short scoring at, at multiple different levels. I mean, it's been used in um, social tennis, and um, they've pushed it through. Uh, have been through that many, many times about how they've pushed it through. The ITA sort of force-fed it into college tennis, and uh, and then now it's going into the junior tennis and. And I've got this isn't isn't good. However, we're going to have to live with it some, I believe. So uh, I want to talk about those things, but I also want to talk about if you have to use it, what's the best kind of short scoring to use so you don't uh, dilute, pollute, and prostitute, which I usually say about what we're doing to tennis a lot of times. And 
I wanted to give my disclaimer, I guess, or it's no, it's a fact. I come to this whole topic from the viewpoint of, uh, you know, a teacher and educator first, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a coach second, and then a, a tennis person third. Uh, I've always looked at the teaching part of this first. There is a difference between being a tennis teacher, I think, and a tennis coach. In there, you know, you, everyone crosses over, but um, you know, we are all teachers, and I, I come to it from the standpoint. My uh, biggest objection, folks, has always been that the fact that um, now that I've done this for 51 years at some capacity in college coaching for 44 years that I, I've noticed the uh, the development and the non-development of so, so many players. And you'll see players that you did not think were going to surface that just came out of the woodwork and developed. And some of your best talented or most talented players that you thought were going to really take off and do great, they just never developed. And, you know, you always wonder why. There's usually a combination of the mental, the physical, the emotional part uh, of the game. Uh, some people have great physical skills, but they don't think well on the court or they're, you know, the emotional part, they just, um, you know, they're all over the place with their emotions and they can't focus or concentrate for that long. And some people just have a knack for <clears throat> knowing how to compete. And, and that's true. But a lot of it, the, the challenge in coaching has always been to help our youngsters, especially if we're working with youngsters, to learn how to take their God-given skills, to train them physically up through probably the ages. You've got to have the fundamentals down, I really believe, by 10, 11, 12, 13 in there. And then um, 14, 15, 16, they've, they've got to be starting to compete. And then um, and then somewhere along the line, they they mentally they start seeing the you know, the patterns and understand whether it's the directionals or the any of the shot, the Wardlaw directionals. I always use other people's names when they come up with the Wardlaw directionals or other processes of being able to construct points. And then they get better at that. Then they get un better at understanding the emotional part of it. And also the, the strategic part of understanding the difference between uh, their attacking game, their countering game, and their grinding game, or their delayed pressure. I, I call it delayed pressure, quick pressure, and countering. Those three skill sets are important. Nobody's great at all three of those, by the way. Uh, players have to fall into their category, and it has a lot to do with their personality, as well as their game style, and well as well as their skill set. But they fall into a category of trying to understand uh, how good, how good is their delayed pressure or their line of scrimmage? How well are they are they off the baseline in constructing points? How good is their quick pressure? Their first exchanges and and big bigger shots to you know to try to end points. And then how well do they counter counter punch as well? And and matching those up really gives them heads up about how to play. But bottom line on the thing is um, that our sport is brilliant. It's brilliant the way that it was constructed, everything from the dimensions of the court to uh, the concept of uh, immediate transition between defense to offense to defense to offense to defense to offense, immediate transitions that take place. And then also 
the the brilliance of it is the chess that it has to be played in order to understand uh, how to use your best skills against the other person's uh, matching up against their best and then taking advantage of their weaker skills and and then you have this tremendous uh, tug of war that goes on and if uh, well, is there a better game that's ever been invented I don't know but now the scoring system where I want to go with this is a huge part of that. It's a huge part of that. It's much more than just hitting a forehand and a backhand and big shots. It's much more than just shot making. The scoring system of having to win by two is the most brilliant, brilliant thing that there is. You know, uh, the, the people have to learn how to construct points and win points in different ways, and then they have to separate themselves from the other player by twos, uh, two points, for example, in, in normal scoring, not no ad, and, uh, but in regular scoring. The separation happens, but they have to consolidate that separation uh, by leading by two. And there's a good reason that you they have, to, have had to do that, because it's the only scoring system in the world, folks, where there's double jeopardy. When you lose a point, the other person play wins the point. Now, in some of the other racket games, that happens. But the point being is that it's a two-point swing on every point. Well, in game point, if with no ad scoring, it is a eight-point swing. And I'm not going to go into that long detail. But because it's an eight-point swing, for example, at 4-4, if you go up 5-4, you need four. The other person needs 12. However, the first game of the match, if you win the first game, it's going to take the other person eight points to get ahead the one game they would have been ahead. Consequently, as you know, the double jeopardies really expound if you're playing three out of five sets and that second set is one, the player either gets ahead by 48 points and two sets or they're tied and it comes down to double jeopardy all over the place. And it, it just increases the drama when you have to win by two. So I want to I go off and onto the topic where we're going to go here and explain something. Now, this is the, the most important thing that I'm going to bring up right now. So we're in a situation where people, tournament directors, administrators, marketeers, gambling industry, whoever it is that's force-feeding no-ad scoring and force-feeding the shortened, abbreviated scoring to us, we're going right to the place uh, where it all does the most damage to do this. Now, so let's, let's, let's talk about this. And if we have to use it, what are we going to do? Okay, first of all, Anyone who teaches tennis understands the first thing you try to do in teaching a person the skill set that they need is learning to increase the length of the rallies, learning how to hit two, three, four balls, five balls, six balls, ten balls. Actually, it's very interesting. Uh, Reed Carlton was a great player at Duke. Uh, number one in the United States, doubles. Number ten in the United States, um, singles, um, just a great, and if he was a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, I think probably he'd still be out there on the tour. But he told me one time, he, he said, Coach, my father 
taught my brother and me every Thursday we had to make 1,000 balls in a row before we could we could play play matches and uh wow i said thousand row he said yeah if we got to 396 or 796 and we missed we had to start over some days it took us three or four hours some days we could do it the first time but we learned how to make balls every coach understands this uh the great chuck willenborg chucky willenborg who i i think never (laughs) By the way, the shout-out to the a great coaching job done by the, the Willenborg family. I remember that, Blaine. When I first started coaching, Blaine Willenborg was the best player in the United States. Chucky, his brother, followed after him. And what great, great competitors, real competitors. And uh, But they made never missed balls. They made balls. Well, Chucky said something his father had did a similar thing with him. I forget whether it was a thousand or not, but then they also had to make a tremendous amount of serves in a row. So, cons- whether it's teaching the old school teaching was consistency, then placement, then depth, and spin, then power on the strokes. But consistency was first. But I think any coach will tell you lengthening the rallies is the most important thing, and then lengthening the rallies. Now, listen, folks. Here's where I'm going with this. So next next goal be to lengthen the points, lengthen the length of the points. So when you get into a uh, match or a point with players, uh, you've got to learn how to lengthen points. Now this goes completely against that uh, guy out there. What's that guy's name? O'Shaughnessy or something like that, who's teaching uh, first four balls, first four balls. Seventy six percent of the shots are over four shots, but he doesn't talk about the other 26% that are the difference makers. The difference makers. You still have to put the ball on the court. But people are teaching first strike tennis with the high-tech rackets and all that thing. But any coach will tell you at first you learn to lengthen the rallies. Then you learn to lengthen the points. Okay, here we go. Now listen, folks. Then you learn to lengthen the games. Huh. Okay, then after you learn lengthening the games, it's that do sad, do sad, do sad game. Anybody that plays a lot of tennis understands the first time you get a service break and you go over to serve the next game, you usually have a very tough, tough game because the player does not want to go down by those two games. You have a very, very tough game, and holding serve after you break serve is the hardest thing. I've always told my players, no celebration till separation. It's not getting that service break. It's locking that service break in. So you have rallies, lengthening rallies, lengthening the points. Excuse me, yes, lengthening the points and lengthening the games. Okay, then what? Lengthening the sets. When you lengthen the sets, first time you ever play a top player and You'll tell your parents, hey, I was up 5-2, to two. I lost 7-5-6-1, but I almost had them that first set. That's a typical score in players that are starting learning how to win. They'll usually say, hey, I played really close, but that first set he ran away with it. Second set he ran away with it. Lengthen rallies, then points, then games, then sets. Then you learn to lengthen matches. Didn't say you win the matches, you learn to lengthen the matches. You push a player into the third set of a match, and you lose 7-5 in the third. You lose 7-6, 7-6. 
You learn to lengthen the sets, and you learn to lengthen matches before you learn how to win, folks, before you learn how to win. Then, guess what? You learn to lengthen tournaments. You you start, and in, in, in the, the way the tournaments are set up, by the way, they're set up that with your early rounds, they're usually players that are about like you. Then your middle rounds are players that, excuse me, the early rounds are like players that you usually learn how to win, first round, second round, if it's the right level. Then the middle rounds are usually players about your level. Then the semis and finals are players above your level. And if you finally break through, you, you have to learn how to lengthen your tournaments. Uh, I'm teaching my daughter how she's got a very, very good-looking tennis game. But she's got to go through these processes of learning how to lengthen all these things in tournament play. She's just now getting into it, and she's getting, you know, learning how to use her game. It's, it's like building a race car, folks. If if you build a race car in a garage and then you've got to take it out on to the racetrack, you'd first take it on to the smaller track, probably the little roads, then a bigger track and a bigger track, and then you don't take a race car right to the Indianapolis 500 without going through the preliminary races. So you have to go through the process of learning to lengthen rallies, then points, then games, then sets, then matches, then tournaments. Then you try to string tournaments together to lengthen seasons and lengthen careers. And that is the sequences sequences of learning. Coach Randy Blumendahl was, is fantastic. This was his observation to me, and he as we talked about the damage, the damage that abbreviated scoring and no-ad scoring is doing to our youngsters because it's keeping them from lengthening games. The only way to really get good in tennis now is you have to learn to lengthen points, and we're not teaching that. We're teaching ball striking, but I always ask the players, yeah, watch those pros, watch uh, Federer and Nadal and these guys, and watch them. I mean, they're hitting the tar out of the ball, but do you, do you see that ten ball rally too that they can play? You know, and so in tennis, that's the way it's set. It's 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 a chess game. Now that all being said, I want to go through very quickly the history of what's going on with the abbreviated scoring. So, always we look. The USA dominated tennis. The Australians did, did before the seventies, and then the seventies and eighties, USA dominated. And believe it or not, it's, it's absolute truth. There was a time in the 1980s when we had 41 USA-born players that played college tennis in the United States, then used that as a platform to go into the professional ranks. And 41 made it top 100 in the world at one time. There was there was a time, and, the, and now today I think there's. USA born to go to college, there's four, I believe. Three on the men's side, one on the women. Now we have some good youngsters coming up, the Brigsby guy and the Francis Tiafo, the Tommy Paul, the Taylor Fritz. These, these are all uh, Riley Opelko. These are all good players that are coming up on the men's side, a lot on the women's side too, but most of them did not go to college. If they did, what, go to college, the College ranks, the ITA will claim that they've got a lot of international players in there. Well, they had already been 
uh, pretty much played a lot of pro tennis before they came to U.S. college to hone their skills. But we're talking about the kids that used to, you know, went to the traditional American school, USA born, go to college, go to college, and then they end up being able to go into the pros. We've we always we had a great system. We had a great system, you know, through the middle 1980s or so. And and nobody can argue that we did not have a great system and lots of role models and lots of people to come up. However, however, a couple things happened here at, at that time. First of all, in the end of the 1980s, there was a lot of, uh, what do I want to say, a lot of... Um, I don't want to say jealousy. I want to say um, envy. I didn't want to, let's see what would the word. A lot of the teams, I'd, I'd say the show pony teams in college, the teams that talented players that didn't work hard, the show pony teams. That I, that if the shirt wear, you know, fits wear it, I guess. But the point is, I'm not calling anybody out. But basically, the hardworking teams, a lot of them in the South. Folks, that's just a fact. The southern, southeast, and the south in Texas and California was pretty much dominating all of college tennis. Uh, the northern teams that played a lot of indoor tennis didn't get as much. Um, there were some very, very good teams, but but most of them didn't uh, do as well. And a lot of those teams in the south were playing a lot of matches, competing a lot, grooming their players, and um a lot of the other school, the, the politics of college tennis, the ITA, basically, I believe it's, there's a saying, it's all right to be smarter than your hound dog. You don't want to have to outrun them. In other words, you know, the work ethic not being able to done or wouldn't be able to done, couldn't do, wouldn't do, or only did, you know, that's, uh, you know, when people don't succeed at something. Basically, they changed the rules. So the rules changed. They pushed in early 90s rules down, restricting ten college tennis matches, folks, to 25 matches, which is ludicrous, which is never, ever going to be enough tennis to for somebody to uh, get better. Gosh, I've got friends who's junior players, youngsters of junior tennis, 14, 15, 16 years old, play over 100 matches a year. In college, you play 25 matches a year. You've got to be kidding me. There's no way to get a lot better if you do that. And then they restricted the practice time, 20 hours a week. Oh, really? Really? Now, why, why would they do that and not restrict the band members' practice? Why would they do that and not the piano guy, the guy that plays piano, said, no, no, 20 hours a week is all you can do. Oh, whoa, whoa, French horn player, violin player. No, no, only 20 hours a week you can do. It's it's uh, there had to have been some really some jealousy or something about the to penalize. Basically, the rules penalize hard workers. It penalizes hard workers, and it, and it really it, it just is really disgusting to have seen it. You know, uh, baseball is very adequate. They play sixty four games. Basketball has more basketball games. Most of them during the middle of the week and things and college uh, tennis has. Any of the other sports have more than college tennis, so why are they, why are they demoting it? 
I brought it up twice in a meeting with administrators. I said, look, is this for academics? The administrator says, absolutely. I said, well, why don't we look at it in a way of in embracing the high achievers and rewarding them? How about if your team has a 3.1 grade point average or if they're all honor students or make it a 3.4? You can do anything you want to do then. Why not do that? And uh, I can't. I'm not. I'm not allowed to reveal the, the re, one. What one administrator said. I went to all the way to a guy who was very high up in the chain, you know, with the, in, in the NCAA, you know, and it, it's it's disgusting. They're penalizing hard high work, hard workers, high achievers. So that's the USA. Basically, when they cut back all of the all of the the play. Coaches right away responded by two ways. They either went across the ocean and started recruiting international players who had played professional tennis a lot, and that all came to a head one time in the mid-1990s, and it was brushed under the rug. And now, can you believe it, that our college players, if you you can make up to $10,000 a year before you come to college and still be eligible to play, well, can you believe that? Really? Well, why isn't the USTA forking over prize money for our juniors, like the pro money for uh, tennis that all the international kids are getting, that should be something that they do. I mean, that only makes sense. So we dominated tennis so with because of the college system. In, in pro tennis, we dominated because we had so many players coming up through the college ranks. Put those together with your phenoms. By the way, even, even someone like a John McEnroe, <clears throat> Played college tennis, won the NCAA. You know, I mean, you can you can go back to the Dennis Ralstons and the all the Chuck McKinleys and everybody. They all played. Everybody played college tennis. But um, but if you put the college a great college system plus the kids that don't have to go to college in order to make it on the pro tour, we'd have a, a lot of great things going. But so that's what happened. And that happened in the early 90s. So I was uh, in the room in 1977, if you want to go back then, when uh, the no-ad thing was first brought up. And uh, there's only 36 coaches. It was supposed to be a one-year experiment. It was used for quite a bit uh, during the 1980s, but we were able to do a hybrid of whatever we wanted to do. We played a lot of tournaments uh, throughout the year, we're not restricted by the numbers of matches, and so therefore it did damage a lot of damage to some players. And we finally got rid of it, but uh, it was brought back in. And I'll, I'll go through that here in a quick second, and then we'll go go on with the program. But the USA started not doing as well in professional ranks, <clears throat> and the college feeder was. Um, you know, people were worried about what was going on in college tennis somewhat. But um, the junior ranks, what happened, I, 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 what I have down here about in 2000, 2004, 2005, uh, I put, we, we adopted a copycat mentality actually back in the 80s. We started trying to copy what Sweden was doing with the Borgs and, the, um, you know, Villanders uh, and all of the great players there. We tried to start copying that a little bit, and then we tried to start copying the Germans. Now we we try to copy the Spain Spanish system more 
and we started copying everything. But the USTA came out and said, well, our kids don't, don't play enough now. So they started trying to do a lot more tournaments and putting together things called Super Nationals. The Super Nationals weren't a bad idea. For years, we only had like four or five main tournaments, and I thought it was a wonderful system. The kids had to win either the National Hard Courts out in California. Kalamazoo was the you know the premier thing for 16 and 18 boys. Um, you had the National Clay Courts. You had the Easter Bowl. You had the uh, Orange Bowl. Then you, you had some tournaments that sprung up like the Eddie Hers and things that were also big events. But the USTA came out with things called Super National, um, National Local Level something Nationals. And these were national opens where anybody could get into them and play. And they were okay. I mean, some of the players won, but everybody knew they weren't as important as those, the big the big ones, the, the top five that I was talking about. And the National Indoors was part of that. National Indoors in Dallas for for uh, young men was uh, the best, pro, best tournament around, really. That was something everybody knew they had to go to. I remember recruiting folks that I... I think I missed 25 straight Thanksgivings at home because I went to Dallas to recruit, but it was it was the place. But anyhow, the USTA was panicked, and they said, "We got to play more. We got to play more. We got to play more." The Spanish kids are playing much more. So, what they tried to do is start packing tournaments, more matches in. Well, I think a big mistake in looking back, and I would say that I maybe had a little bit of to do with. The mistake, I I just voiced my opinion that consolation matches were very, very big, good. I um, remember going to Kalamazoo and to the National Clay Courts, these national events, and some of the best matches ever were the backdraw matches at Kalamazoo. Now, I, those were, they are, backdraw matches are great for those middle-level players, but it's really interesting how the top dogs, the top players in the country Usually uh, they don't really care or they don't want to go to the back drawing. And the, it's not the best uh, event for the, um, the top players. So you get a lot of bad matches. You get players defaulting a lot. One year it's 53 defaults in Kalamazoo. You know, players just pulling out for mysterious injuries, phantom injuries. They basically just didn't want to play. Now there's no penalty for pulling out, so everybody pulls out of these back draws. So the back draws, uh, were, I think, were a bad idea. It used to be that you would play main draws. They were knockout rounds. If you lost, you went home, and you played doubles. And if you wanted to get good, you, you got good in the doubles. Well, with the doubles, uh, it's interesting how I always used to follow players who started doing well in doubles because no player ever broke out of the pack in singles first. Most players broke out. They would have to, you would start seeing them do well in the doubles, and then the doubles players, a, a player would find themselves in the finals of a doubles, and they would be alongside of the singles players sometimes in events, and that's how players got their confidence. A rite of passage used to be to get good in the doubles. There is not a big rite of passage in the consolation matches. Consolation matches, really, it's just, I think you get work in if you want to. I think consolation matches should be first round or second round losers voluntarily playing, and, uh, you know, that's it. 
I, I think your top players don't want to play back draw matches, and I I really really believe that. Uh, even though I like watching back draw matches for the person who's really tough, but not not that the five star players don't don't like back draw matches. So that was a big problem. They started playing more back draws. Well, then they started making the draws bigger. <clears throat> and Kalamazoo went from 128 forever. And they started going to 256 to 270. 200 and some players there. Pretty soon it was diluted. And then I hate to say polluted with lesser players. Di- di- no, diluted, not polluted. Diluted, diluted with lesser players. Diluted. And what you had is no longer was it to just name a national champion. It was to give everybody a chance, all of the hard triers a chance. And, okay, I mean, I understand it. And they tried a a, uh, qualifying round at first, and that was perfect. But it it really, parents complained and had a megaphone to complain for the first time with all of the Social media, I guess, and so they started doing constellation matches. So, anyhow, the the the, the hard, the real, really big draws are are not good. Now, let me make this point: the worst mistake we've made is that now the USTA has come in, put all this together, all this stuff to instead of using a system that worked for years and years and years, it was great. Now we do a top-down authoritarian system where the USTA mandates everything. They go top down and all of our tournaments have been regulated by their top down management scale. In other words, our tournaments of heritage have been diluted, polluted, prostituted, whatever you want to say. Our tournaments of heritage have been wiped out. They've been wiped out. All of those tournaments that kids played for, the great Tim Wilkinson once made a great statement. He said, kids don't play for points. They play for rivalries and tournaments of heritage, and no statement could be more true. Parents, your kids don't play for points. We do. You do. Parents look at points. Kids look at rivalries and tournaments of heritage. And it is awful to see kids chasing UTRs, points, and those stupid things that have nothing to do with learning how to compete or working on your game and getting it better. And getting it better. So we we the point system was really a bad bad thing. Um, the head to head was much better. The point system was done out of convenience, not because we should. But here, listen to me. Listen, we do it because we can. Because we got computers, we got people who run computers more than com- they have common sense. They're good at computers, but bad at common sense. But our kids don't play for points. The point system is awful, and it really has made kids chase the wrong stuff. So we're put we put a lid on our our, our youngsters, and also all we've done is. Teach parents if you fly your kids around to more tournaments and get more points, they get a higher ranking, but they're not better players. And it, it's just really a bad thing to watch from the top down. But the bottom line, we're getting to a place now where we're they're cramming more and more matches in a short amount of time, and the administrators are saying, well, we got to get tournaments in, and then if they got rain, 
They've been jumping around, trying all kinds of different things. So program today, and I've got about 10 minutes to go through it. If we've got to do this hogwash, and I want to make sure that I've given everything here, consolation matches. Look, folks, here's the way tournaments should be. It should be knockout rounds and singles, full two out of three set matches, let the kids play. Doubles should be two out of three sets, or I'm going to throw in that thing said called the icebreaker rule. Icebreaker instead of tiebreaker, okay. It could be eight-game pro sets, but one-game set is ludicrous, pathetic, and the worst stupid thing I've ever seen in college tennis or junior tennis is that stupid no-ad scoring one set. It's uh, a... <laughs> Oh, my gosh, I don't want to get telling stories. I run out of time here, folks, but we're playing a really good uh, Southern, uh, ACC team. Uh, my team is here, and uh, we got beaten about 16 minutes, and I went up to the referee afterwards. I said, ref, I, I don't know if my guys can continue. They're all so exhausted. You know, they're so hard. They're so exhausted, I don't think they continue. <laughs> he just laughed. He said, it's not too good. I said, it's pathetic, pathetic, not a test for anybody. And you know, it was just hitting balls around, and uh, who got first break, and that was it. You know, it was, it was just awful. So, anyhow, the top-down management that has to change point system is is bad. All right, so if you have to use no ad scoring, no, no, if you have to use abbreviated scoring, okay, let's let's go through these so I get through them, and then I'll I'll uh, wind down here. Look, folks, three out of five full sets. Regular scoring is the best. Your grand slams have to be that. Would anybody argue after watching Nadal and uh, what the heck, Menvedev, play in the finals of Australia, that how brave that was and how inspired you were? Our baseball coach at the university where I work came to me and said that was one of the bravest sporting events I saw. Nadal dug down and taught everybody what tennis is all about and how could we ever have something like that again if they go to abbreviated scoring. It would be shameful. Now, they're not going to do that, but do you know folks know at finals of the NCAAs used to be three out of five full sets. Yeah, for an NCAA champion to qualify into the U.S. Open straight in. You just get straight in a main draw, U.S. Open. Uh, Kalamazoo champion, three out of five sets. Straight into U.S. Open. Well, they should be. It should be because the better player will win. Second best thing is two out of three full sets, regular scoring. And, folks, for competitive tennis, that is it. Now, look, there should be two levels of tennis in the United States. One is competition tennis or or tournament tennis. The other should be recreational tennis. Participation events and performance events. Those two should be separated. By the way, USTA, you need to separate those two. And here, the slam is that your 3.5 leagues and your league tennis and the these are those are all really participation events. And don't get your feelings hurt if you're some lady in Dallas, Texas, and you play in a 4.0 league, or a man who plays on Saturday morning in 4.5 league or something. But you're in a participation sport. You're not in a performance sport anymore where you're trying to be professional. You know, and it's quite different. So that we need to separate that. Just do that. Okay, but uh, two out of three full sets. Now, if you have to play shortened scoring, now here's where I'm going to go with this. Absolute best would be to play <clears throat> your 
two full sets, traditional scoring. The third set, if you started at 3-3, do you realize that you don't have to win? You only have to win 12 points. When no ad, and that tiebreaker, silly tiebreaker with third set's 10. I mean, you could start at 3-3 or 2-2. I mean, if if you had to, if you had to. That would be your best solution. That's better than playing that 10-point tiebreaker. is horrible, and I'll tell you why. It does a lot of damage. Okay, but I'm going to throw this out. Instead of the tiebreaker system, folks, how about trying the icebreaker system? This is Brian Rohr in Cookville, Tennessee. Shout out to you, high school coach up there who came up with the icebreaker. He said to me one summer, he said, Coach Creasy, he says, Coach, if they are playing a tiebreaker for the third set, letting it letting it count as a whole set, why not just play the tiebreaker for the first set? If you're the better player and you win the first set, you're going to get the match over with quicker and they save more time. However, if you're the better player and you lose that tiebreaker out of the blocks, you will never lose to a lesser player in two full sets. The problem with a tiebreaker for the third set is we have skewed results. But the worst thing about a tiebreaker for the third set is this, folks. The worst thing about a tiebreaker for the third set is that when your player wins, it's really not a real win. It's like kissing Aunt Sally or, you know, for you ladies, when you used to have to kiss, uh, you know, great-grandpa, you know, or something, you know. And it, it uh, you know, so... It, it, it's not a real kiss. It's it's yeah. It's you know, but it, it's not a win. It is not a win. There's no way. It's it's not a it's not a credible win. The players who win doing it, okay. The, the players who win doing it, it it they don't advance with confidence. Likewise, likewise. When you lose the tiebreaker for the third set, it doesn't hurt enough to make you go back to work. It's not a rite of passage. And in every rite of passage I've ever seen in one of my players, it has always been, it has always been after a tough three-set win or a tough three-set loss. It's never after a tiebreaker for the third set, ever. So again, we're we're stunting the growth of our players. All right, number five, the, the the next one you might think about doing. We used to do this uh, when I worked at uh, a great uh, great place in College Park, Maryland. Uh, we had to play lots of matches in the afternoon, so I would have the players start at two two for the first set, like an icebreaker then play full set second, full set third, and we got all the matches done. And that usually was a great thing. It's like an icebreaker, but use 2-2 instead. Never. No ad scoring yet, though. <clears throat> remember remember the, the system of learning how to extend rallies, then points, then games, then sets, then matches, then tournaments, then seasons, then careers. You don't want to take away one of the biggest building blocks. Hey, baseball, if you're playing junior baseball, they don't take away the strikes and the balls and the strikes. That's like the points in tennis for a game. And at bat, they don't take that away. What do they do to shorten the game by inning?
we should be shortening the game. If we're going to shorten the game, maybe by now and then by games, maybe play the tiebreaker at 5-5 or something, but not with by shortening the games. All right, let's go on. If you have to play the next one after that, <clears throat> you know, you could abbreviate the first and the second set. In a full set for the third. If you had to do that, oh, I don't like those four-game sets. Oh, I don't like the two sets, two out of three sets starting at 2-2. Two, two. Ten, ten, ten point tiebreaker for the third set is number eight on my list, folks. It's awful. It's awful. No ad scoring, two out of two out of three. The two sets regular scoring tiebreaker for the third is better than no ad scoring. The no ad scoring is just horrible for the development of the players. That got down here. A game pro set is as good as next in line, maybe. No ad scoring for full three full sets. No ad scoring abbreviated set and all that. We are using probably the worst learning tool possible with our youngsters. So uh, one of the coach, I was on a call, a uh, southern level call or a national level call recently, and one of the uh, head head people's talking, and they said, "Well, we we have a problem. We're trying to get in a lot of matches. We're trying to figure out how to do this and how to do that." And you know, one of the coaches spoke up and he said, "Look, man, hey, it, my son played for." Ten years, the last three years, he hasn't gotten to play a third set. Hadn't gotten to play a third. That's it's been horrible, horrible for my youngster growing up. And uh, you know, I, I feel the same. I've got a daughter that's getting ready to play a lot of tournaments, and the high school format. Luckily, it'll be changing back to traditional scoring. It'd be great, but there's a lot of lot of uh, work to get that change back, but. The, the bottom line on this is that she <laughs> played these matches, no ad scoring in high school, and then going to the tournament, I don't want her to play and not learn how to play. She's not learning how to play. And the depth of it is, is, is so, so very much. And, all right, and to wind it up, let, let me say this, and I, I'm in, with all sincerity. If let's say the greatest players of all time, <clears throat> a uh, Rod Laver and a Stan Smith, or an Arthur Ashe, a uh, Ken Rosewall, uh, Roger Fetter, they all came together and they came to one of these committees and they said, hey, I know that, we know that tennis has been scored by this system for 152 years. And all of the records are out there with traditional scoring where you have to win by two. And we understand, though, that all that time these matches have been played, some of them really, really took a long time. We want to have all of you guys change to no-ad scoring. Okay, now think about this. Your reaction to this would be, what What gives you the right to be bigger than the game of tennis? In golf, players don't ever come up here and try to do that. What gives you the right in the game of tennis to do this? We would think it's absurd. But that is much more credible, much more credible than these committees that change these rules 
these folks, a lot of these people on the committees did were not were not skilled enough in coaching. I'm not going to run them down. They were not skilled enough in player development. They didn't look at the depth of it. They were looking at marketing value, potential marketing value. And now, and now people are actually trying to have random results because it benefits certain marketeers to have random results. They think it's good for the game. No, it's not. It's not good for the game. We changed our greatest game in the world, the greatest sport in the world. It's a great, great art form, and it's something that people believe in at no matter what level they play the rest of their lives. They, they play it and they love it for their, their entire life, whether they are good at it or not, because of the depth of the game. But when we change it to a marketing game and just try to, to uh, um, hyper-speed the development of it and things, and uh, people try to put their own name on it, why? Because they can, not because they should. And people try to force things through. It's shameful. And I blame our organizations. I blame our USTA. I blame the ITF. I blame for selling out selling out to the marketeers. And it, 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 it's quite shameful to me. It, it's, it's, uh, it um, one day will be a sport that I'm probably not proud of. And, and right now I, it's, I'm doing everything I can, folks, everything I can to battle against tradition, this uh, no-ad scoring, abbreviated scoring 10-point tiebreakers for third set, and all of the things they do. I'm so against the marketing of it, the gambling that goes on with the sport of tennis, you know, it's 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 all just shameful, and it, it is not about the welfare of our youngsters learning uh, this UTR stuff and everything. It's a great tool for individual people, but our kids are sizing up their games against other kids and everything, and that's wrong. They put themselves into a pecking order. They worry more about the uh, product instead of the process. The entertainment is over the it has been emphasized over the education. Thank you very much today for listening. I, I've uh, this has been my soapbox, uh, and I've got most of the things in it. I think I covered eighty five ninety percent of what I wanted to. But uh, I'm going to love this sport, and I'm going to fight for this sport, and I'm going to do everything I can to uh, keep pushing. Uh, letting people become aware that, look, the history and the heritage of our sport is the most sacred heirloom that we could ever have. And if we let it go away, folks, we we have just, uh, we, we've done more damage than we could ever, ever, um, ever imagine. And we won't have this great game anymore. And I appreciate you listening to this. Coach Chuck Creasy in American Tennis. And um, we'll look forward to talking to you next week.
And as Coach Chuck Creasy reminding you that you're in the process of winning or losing every day of your life, every day of your life, has very little to do with a win or a loss. See you next week on American Tennis.